I don't know if you've been noticing this. I think this is a, at least the second Christmas song that speaks back to the seed. It goes back to Genesis. So I, just, I think that is so cool how uh, that's so predominant in the, in the word that they even recognize the gospel back in Genesis chapter 3. Our confession of sin this morning comes from Hebrews, and if you've, if you've had a chance to read Hebrews, well, let me just say this. From Ephesians, Ephesians 4, it speaks about how God gives us apostles, pastors, teachers, and so really, to teach the word, he's given us teachers and we stand on their shoulders, so to speak. We stand on their shoulders and, and glean from the teachings that they've given us. And there's two, two particular uh, authors that I, I really love. One is A.W. Tozier. A.W. Tozier. Well, he's, he's a good one, too. A.W. Pink is the one who I was thinking of. A.W. Pink and then uh, John Owen. They have both written... Uh, commentary on the book of Hebrews that are they're just phenomenal. So in our confession of sin this morning, it reads, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For who were those who, he who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. If you would join me as we sing this, as brothers and sisters together, this, this prayer of confession. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning confessing our unbelief and hardness of heart, how often we have rebelled against you and gone astray in our hearts, forgetting your mighty work of salvation and the redemption you have won for us in Christ. When we are tempted to trust in our own works, Help us to remember that you have justified us by 
by grace alone, through faith alone. Forgive us, Lord, we pray, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to trust in you. Amen. Would you please turn to hymn number 90? We'll sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel.
Exodus 2 and then verses 13 through 15 reads, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. In 13 it says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of, God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the great I am. I am. That you are the great, sovereign, true Lord of hosts. Father, we thank you for everything that you have given us. Out of the abundance of your heart, and even our weakest and times of being without, you are there in our midst. Father, this holiday season, this, this holiday where we celebrate the birth of the Christ, the Incarnation. Let us, let us enjoy this with our brothers and our sisters, but let us not get caught up so much in the commercialization, the, the, the secularization of what it's become. But let us remember that because of your sacrifice, you, you've given us, Father, the gift of all gifts. We thank you, Father, for the gift of Christ. We thank you for him reigning in our hearts. Be with us the rest of this day, Lord. Be with Kendall as he presents your word. Speak through him. Let our hearts be sensitive to your voice through your word. And help us to take this truth and apply it to our lives. Let it change our hearts. Let it change our minds. That it would be more glorifying to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. In our 1689 Confession of Faith, it speaks of this saving faith. It says, the grace of faith. Why don't you read it with me? The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts, and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed of God, it is increased and strengthened. I want to open up your Bibles to John chapter 6. I probably said this last week, but this is one of my all-time favorite chapters. So 
we might be in this chapter the rest of, or maybe all of 2022. <laughs> it's a great chapter. It's it's um it's a there's so much in here. So okay, um, last week we talked about this great miracle of our Lord in John chapter six. We talked about the feeding of the five thousand. And this event had a lot of overtones to it, right? This Passover event is happening at the same time. This crowd is following Jesus. He goes up on a mountain and he feeds these people miraculously with two fish and five loaves. And we sort of talked about all these Old Testament themes and echoes and overtones that are happening right before our eyes. That God, through Christ, is almost recreating, recapitulating this event that happened in the Old Testament, namely God feeding his people with this manna from heaven miraculously. And so we saw how Jesus is really setting himself up as the true and better Moses. He's not just like Moses. He's not just on the same plane as Moses. He's better. He's the fulfillment of what Moses pointed to, right? Moses could only provide them with earthly you know, saving them from earthly bondage to slavery and providing them with earthly bread. God, through Christ, is providing his people with life-giving bread. So he's better than Moses. And so we saw by the end, though, of this miracle, the people are still focused on the earthly things. Just like the people in the Old Testament, just like the people that we read about this morning, their hearts are hardened, they're grumbling. By the end of this chapter, we'll see them just ask for more. What else can you do, Jesus? What other miracles can you perform? And their hearts are hardened. They started making connections. They call Jesus the prophet. They want to make him a king. So they start making these Old Testament connections. But ultimately, they're focused on the external. They made the same mistake as the Israelites in the wilderness. They would rather have the earthly, worldly pleasures of Egypt over the plain bread, this plain manna from heaven. And so we can start to make some parallels there to how these people rejecting Christ and his message, the plainness, if you will, quote unquote, the plainness of Christ, right? He's not glowing. <laughs> There's not angels surrounding him that they can see. He's just in the flesh. And they've rejected this plain bread from heaven. They'd rather have the flashy miracles and the flashy external kingly overthrow. And so we're going to see this event continue. And there's going to be sort of this interlude of Jesus walking on the water. And it almost feels out of place. And we're going to try to show how that's not out of place, but very much in line with everything that's going on. And then we're going to see the response of the crowd to some of this miraculous walking on the water. And we're going to see Jesus point them not to the miracle again. Again, he's going, to, he's going to point them not to the miracle, but to himself. And he's going to show us the nature of true saving faith and justification and salvation by faith alone through the gospel, through Christ. So I'm going to read the passage. I'll pray for us. And then we'll, we'll look at God's word. We'll begin at verse 16. This is right after the events that we um, looked at last week. This is the word of the Lord. And when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and they got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea became rough, because a strong wind was blowing. 
And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, or more literally translated, I am. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? But Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him, whom he has sent. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning, we come thankful. We come in adoration, in worship of who you are, that you are the God of the universe, who has created us, who has made us in your image, who has provided us with breath in our lungs, blood pumping through our veins, and yet we're so prone to ignore you, so prone to be satisfied with the things of this world, to pursue sin, to be hardened in our hearts, Lord. We pray this morning that you would cut us with your word, that it would do the work that only it can do, that it would divide bone and marrow, and that you would be glorified as we see Christ today and feed on him by faith. Help us to do that, Lord. We are weak. We are helpless. We need the power of your Spirit this morning to fill us, to indwell us, and to open the eyes of our hearts to see the glory of the gospel in Christ, and that we are saved not by our works, but by faith and trust in you alone. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to break this into three sections. And we have a handout there if you want to follow along there. We're going to, we're going to see Jesus and the water, his interaction, walking on the water, and his interaction with the disciples. We're going to see Jesus and the crowd in verse 22 through 25. And then we're going to see Jesus and really the nature of saving faith in the remaining verses. So we pick up from where we left off last week. Jesus had just fed the 5,000. And the same day when evening comes... His disciples get into a boat, and they cross the sea. And if we know our geography of ancient first century Israel, we see that Sea of Galilee was at the north part, and the disciples were on the east. And they were going across the sea to Capernaum, which was kind of on the north 
side of the sea. And Jesus was not with them. So he doesn't come with them, right? We saw last week he leaves the people. They try to make him king by force. He doesn't want any part of that. He doesn't want this earthly kingdom. And so he withdraws himself. And so his disciples kind of leave without him. And this is interesting because not very many times in the Gospels do we see the disciples without our Lord, right? Most of the time they're right with him, right by his side. Maybe other than the time that he sends them out in several different places in the gospel. But besides that, the disciples are with our Lord. And it's dark. We see there in verse 17, it says, It was dark, and a strong wind is coming. The sea is getting rough. And we can imagine the fear that these disciples would have had. In some ways, Christ was probably their like safety net, you know. <laughs> when they got into a bad situation, he was the one that sort of bailed them out. And so we can sense the kind of fear that they would have. And, and they see Jesus walking on the water, coming to them. And instead of joy, they're afraid. Instead of joy, it says that they were frightened. And so we should think to ourselves, shouldn't they be happy? Shouldn't they be excited to see our Lord? He's the one that's walked with them through these years of ministry, and he's their savior and the light of the world, and why are they afraid? And like I said, this is, this is one of the only sections of the scripture that is recorded in all four gospels, the feeding of the 5,000 is walking on the water. And if we go to Mark chapter 6, you kind of see this parallel account, and I think it sort of fleshes out what's going on here. And Mark talks about their hardness of heart. That these disciples, even though they had just seen Jesus miraculously feed thousands with next to nothing, even though they see our Lord walking on the water, they're still afraid. They're still afraid. There's still a hardness of heart that they have. They forgot about Christ's almighty power. And our Lord confronts them more so in in Mark chapter 6, but they, they were focused on the darkness and the chaos around them. They were focused on the roughness of the sea and not the light of the world that was coming to them on the waters, miraculously suspending the laws of nature so he could get to them. And they're afraid. And how often are me and you like that, right? The, the seas of our lives, the turmoil that we face on a daily basis, the chaos, if you have a two-year-old, you know this chaos very well. <laughs> but even if you don't, our lives are chaotic. The world around us, our sin in our own lives. And so how often in our most dark moments are we not quick to look to our Savior? We're quick to look at the circumstances around us. In this same event, in another gospel, like I said, is the one where Jesus calls Peter to walk on the water. <laughs> Come out on the waves. And Peter walks on the water with Jesus. He, he's miraculously walking on the water. What causes him to fall when he looks around at the waves? And so how often are we prone to this sort of, this response, oh, we of little faith. But we see our Lord is patient with these disciples. He's not quick to rebuke them. He's quick to comfort them. And he has this amazing statement that he says in their fear and in their anxiety, he brings these words of comfort. He says, it is I, do not be afraid. And as I said, this can be more literally translated in the Greek, ego eimi, which is the Greek translation 
of the verses that we read in Exodus, this pronouncement of the Lord's name, I am Yahweh, Jesus here is identifying himself with that very name. And so three things to know about these words of our Lord. First, they are words of comfort. They are words of comfort. He's not sitting there saying, stop being wussies, you know? He's not sitting there being mad at the disciples for being afraid. He comforts them. He brings words of comfort. And this happened frequently in the Old Testament, these calls to do not be afraid. Anytime there was an angel of the Lord or something where the people were afraid, our Lord comes to them and says, do not be afraid. And so we see the same thing here. So these are words of comfort. Secondly, as I sort of hinted at, these are words of divinity. This is not just Jesus saying, it's me. <laughs> He's saying, I am. I am Yahweh. I am God. I am. Do not be afraid. So these are really words of power, almost grounding what he says in the second part. Because I am, therefore do not be afraid. Because I am God, don't be afraid. So we see these words of comfort, these words of divinity, and maybe more subtly, but I think still here, these are words of exodus. Words of Exodus. Now, what do I mean there? Exodus, talking about not only the act of salvation and redemption out of Egypt in the Old Testament, but really the book of Exodus, we see three similar things that we see in, our, in, this, in this short passage today. First, what do we see in the book of Exodus? We read it this morning. God appears to Moses. God appears to Moses just as Jesus appears to the disciples here. And it's this fire that does not consume, this angel of the Lord, who's identified as the Lord in the book of Exodus. So God appears to Moses in the book of Exodus. You can read about this. We, we read it this morning. But what, is, what does God do next? He reveals himself to Moses, and then he reveals his name. He reveals his name to Moses to comfort him. To assure him. He says, I am who I am. This is my name. This is why you can have confidence going to the people. He not only appears to Moses, but he reveals his name to Moses. That I am. I am the eternally existing one. I didn't come into being. I didn't start beginning. At the beginning of the world, I've always existed. I am unchanging. I am who I am. And then thirdly, we see not only does God reveal his name to Moses and appear to Moses, but it is God himself in the pillar of fire and cloud that leads his people through what? The sea. Miraculously bringing the 12 tribes through the sea to safety on the other side. What do we see here? Our Lord appear to the disciples, reveal his name, and save them miraculously through the sea, safely to the other side. I don't think that's a coincidence. And if we turn, if you could turn there if you wanted to, in, in your Bibles to Psalm 77. Psalm 77, verse 19 We see the psalmist here, he's recounting this great exodus that God has saved his people through, and he's using this poetic language to talk about this event. 
Starting back in verse 16, the psalmist says, When the waters saw you, O God, when they saw you, they were afraid. The cloud poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, lightning came. There's all this almost apocalyptic language. And then in verse 19, it says this, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Your footprints were unseen. Very interesting that the way the psalmist is looking back on this Exodus event is this God leading his people through the seas, even though his footprints couldn't be seen. It's very interesting. I think that our Lord here is walking on the sea, leading the 12 disciples, this new Israel, through the sea. And so we can say this, Jesus here, the great I am, the angel of the Lord, the fire that does not consume, appears to his people, his covenant people, the disciples here, comforts their fields, fears, reveals his name, and leads them through the sea miraculously to safety. Amazing. And so we can say with confidence that these events are not coincidental. They're not just accidents. <laughs> just like we talked about last week. We had these sort of Passover tones last week. This week we see this great exodus. Next week we'll look at this manna from heaven. These are all Old Testament types and shadows that are coming to full light in the New Testament through our Lord. And so we see that by the end of this account, the disciples are glad to take him into the boat. <laughs> They're glad to take him into the boat. They're brought to safety. He has led them through these sort of judgment waters, these chaotic waters, and he's brought them to safety just as God did in the Old Testament. In the pillar of fire and cloud. So we see that account of Jesus walking on the water. And then the narrative kind of just moves on. It's very interesting. In verse 22, it continues. So it moves us to the crowd. So this is the response of the crowd after they've just been fed by Jesus miraculously. And so this is the day after. The day after the feeding of the 5,000. After the walking on the water. The crowd starts to realize something. They, they almost play Sherlock Holmes here. They're trying to be detectives. And they start looking at all the facts and they start putting these pieces together. And so you can put a, kind of like a logical argument. This is kind of how they thought, just to sort of summarize those couple verses. They see that there's only one boat. <laughs> there's only one boat that the disciples take across the sea. The second thing they see is that Jesus wasn't on that boat. So there's one boat that goes across. Jesus is somewhere else in the mountains, withdrawn, and he didn't get on that boat. And so the conclusion that they come to, so premise one, there's only one boat. Premise two, Jesus was not on that boat. And the conclusion that they sort of draw is they must be thinking, Jesus must have done another miracle. He must have miraculously made his way across the sea. There's really no other explanation. He could have gone around, but to go around at night would have neither been safe nor wise, right? And it would have taken longer. And so that's why they sort of ask, when did you get here? They're trying to figure out, when did you get here? Because if you got here at the same time as the disciples, even though you didn't leave on the same boat as them, something must be up. And the way Sherlock Holmes puts it is, 
when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. They're almost reasoning sort of like Sherlock Holmes here. No, it can't be. Did he actually miraculously walk through the water? And so they must be thinking to themselves, wow, he fed us miraculously. He multiplied bread and loaves, and he can walk on the water, and he can miraculously suspend the laws of physics and gravity and walk on water. Amazing. We need to make him king. We need to, let's go find him. And so they take their boats, they go and find him. And that's sort of what's baked into their question there is, Rabbi, when did you come him? We see them still recognizing these things about our Lord. Rabbi, which means teacher. They're, they're recognizing some of these things about our Lord. They're, there's all these undertones to what they're expecting of him, that he's going to feed them, that he's going to perform another miracle, that he might walk on the water, or what possibly could he do? And it even says in verse 24 that they're seeking Jesus, that they're seeking him. But Jesus, as we know, knows their heart. And so this leads us to the final and third section where Jesus gets to the heart of what saving faith is and what true seeking after our Lord is. He sees their hearts. He knows what they're really after and he confronts them. Right? In verse 15, we saw him withdraw, but here he presses in and he confronts them and he says these words Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. This is not the first time this has happened in the Gospel of John. If you remember Nicodemus and John chapter 3, he comes to our Lord at night and he says, Rabbi, you've done all these great works. You must be sent from God. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. And so we can see these words here of these people and they're coming and they're seeking him, right? This is good. This is, this is a good thing. But Jesus knows their heart. He knew Nicodemus' heart. He knows these people's heart. And he knows that they're seeking him only because they have their bellies filled. You're not seeking me because you saw signs. In other words, you didn't see my true glory. You didn't see what these signs pointed to. You didn't understand why I did these things. It was to point to me, all you're focused on is the earthly external bread. You just want another meal. You just want these earthly benefits that I can give you. You could put it in today's language. You just want health. You just want wealth. You just want prosperity. You just want comfort. And you're not seeking me for the right reasons. And this was, this was me for much of my life. Growing up in the circles I grew up in, this was me. I thought God was just sort of a genie in the bottle. You ask for something and you get it back. It's sort of like a cosmic vending machine. You, you put in the right coins and you get out what you want, right? That God is really just there to, to be there for us, to give us what, what, what we want. And maybe it's not the, it's easy to point fingers at the prosperity gospel, right? The guys that say, God wants you to have a new car or a new plane or whatever. But 
there's so many ways in our own hearts where we, we act like this. We think God is just there to provide for our earthly needs, and that's it. And Jesus is confronting that, and he's saying that it's possible to seek Jesus here, but to seek him for the wrong reasons. To seek him for the wrong reasons. That maybe some of us might say, yeah, Jesus is good, but sin is not really a big deal. You know, it's not really a problem for me. Jesus here is confronting them. They're seeking him, but it's not for the wrong it's not for the right reasons. And then he tells them. It's almost, it's almost a, a cry. It's almost a, I don't know what the right word is, but verse 27 is almost like this plea with them. And he says these words, Do not work for the food that perishes. Don't work for the food that perishes. This is an allusion, I believe, to, and many others, to what we read today in Isaiah 55 where it says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Why do, you, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Jesus is telling these people, why do you work for food that perishes? <laughs> As he said to the woman at the well, everybody who drinks this water is going to get thirsty again. Everybody who spends their money on earthly things is not going to be satisfied. Do not work for the food that perishes. And then he gives them the answer, but work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. That he's saying that there's this food out there that will sustain you that will not perish. It will endure. And the Son of Man, this figure from Daniel, this second Adam, is going to give it to you. Because on Him, God the Father has set His seal. This is the approval of the Father on this servant-anointed, this spirit-anointed servant of the Lord, promised in the Old Testament, the Son of Man, Jesus saying, I'm Him, and I'm going to give you food that endures to eternal life. And then in verse 28, we just see the confusion of these people. And it's a confusion that we see a lot of times in the scriptures. They say, what must we do? What must we do? Remember the rich, the rich young ruler in the Gospels. He comes to Jesus. He said, I've done everything. I've, come, I've obeyed all the law. What do I need to do to have eternal life? In, the, in Acts, the Spirit has been poured out, and the people come and say, what do we need to do? There's this tendency in the human heart to, to respond to the grace of God and the gospel and say, what do I need to do? How can I earn this eternal life? How can I gain, how can I work for this gift? And we see Jesus confront their misconceptions and he says, this is the work of God that you believe. That you believe in him whom the Father has sent. This is the work. They want to know what to do. They want to give us a list. Give us a checklist, right? If we can fulfill these ten things, then we'll have eternal life. 
Just tell me how to earn it. Tell me what, tell me what to do. Should I go here? Should I, should I do this? Tell me what to do. And they've missed the whole point. They are bored with this plain bread from heaven. They want to know how they can work. And this is really the heart of legalism, right? Legalism says, what do I need to do? This principle of works. And it's really baked into every other religion, every other philosophy, every other way of living life. At its core is this principle of works. And Jesus is saying, this is the work, believe. He's almost flipping it. It's almost like this play on words that he's having here. This is the work, believe. Or we can say it like this, like Isaiah says, this is the cost of the food, it's free. <laughs> this is the cost, it's free. He says, come to the waters, come everyone who thirsts, come buy and eat without money and without price. Jesus is saying, come, do the work, and this is the work, believe. Just as Isaiah said, this is the cost of the food, nothing. It's free. It's a gift. And this is really Jesus getting at the heart of what the Christian faith is. Namely, faith. <laughs> that faith itself is not a work. It is an act of receiving and resting on Christ alone for salvation. It is at the heart of what the gospel is. The gospel is not due the gospel is, it's been done. The Christian faith is not one of salvation by works, but salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone. And so there's much to glean from this passage. There's much to apply to our own lives because we're so prone to think in the same way. We're prone to sort of reject this free offer of the gospel. And maybe we don't do it explicitly. Maybe many of us would say, I believe in salvation by faith alone. But how often do we feel in our hearts like we have to earn God's favor? Like we have to do enough for him to be happy with us. That we have to somehow have our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. And then God will truly be happy with us. And the message of the gospel is... You don't have to clean yourself up first. Christ washes us. You don't have to purify yourself before you come to the Lord. He is the one that purifies you. You can't save yourself. It is Him that saves us. Right? Back in, back in Genesis, in the, in, in the account with Abraham, does it say, And Abraham worked, and God counted it to him as righteousness. No, it says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Did Israel save themselves through the Red Sea? No, it was God. It was God who saved them. Was it the disciples that brought themselves through the, through the sea? No, it was Christ. And so we can see that salvation itself is a work of God. That this is the true work of God is to believe. Believe in Christ. That salvation is by faith alone. That these people want to know what they need to do. And Christ here is saying, it's been done. You just need to believe. And so to try to make a connection here between this walking on the water and these words of our Lord here in talk, calling these people to believe... We see here that Jesus was no mere man. He was not a mere man that was a good teacher 
that fed a lot of he fed the homeless people and he was a good teacher. Far from that. Jesus was no mere man, but he was God. He was the I am of the Old Testament. He was the God of Psalm 77 that stills the waters of chaos and leads his people to safety. He's the one who will lead a greater exodus as the true Passover lamb, the one who was innocent, spotless, without stain or blemish, whose blood must be applied to us for death to pass over, and he is the one who will lead his people out of slavery to sin to the heavenly promised land, eternal life itself. And this is free. It's a gift. It can't be earned. It can't be bartered for. You can't pay enough to earn this. You have to believe. You have to trust. You have to have faith in the work of Christ. And that partaking of Christ by faith is what brings us into fellowship with God. And so the question that we have sort of have to ask ourselves, it's sort of screaming from the text, is have we fed on Christ? Have we fed on Christ? Have we been nourished by this bread from heaven? Jesus tells these people, don't work for the food that perishes. There is an endless amount of food out there that perishes. Sin. Sin is this thing that promises satisfaction. It promises fulfillment, but it can't satisfy. And this is what the world lives in. This is what unbelievers do. They seek satisfaction in money, in success, in fame, in comfort, that fulfilling every urge will bring ultimate satisfaction, that it will actually make them happy. And Jesus is saying, that's going to perish. It's going to fall away. Every earthly pleasure will fail. And we're tempted to think like this as believers. We're tempted to think that, oh, if I just give in to this thing that I want, that will make me happy. That will bring pleasure, that will bring satisfaction. And like I said, it's, it's easy to point fingers at the extremes, right? The prosperity gospel. But we're so prone to this ourselves. We're so prone to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Deceitfulness of sin. Sin says, I'm not going to harm you. I'm not going to hurt you. But it cuts at the very heart of who we are. It separates us from God. Sin is wicked. It's evil. It promises satisfaction. And it cannot, cannot give it. Only the bread from heaven. Only Christ and Him crucified. Only believing in Him alone for salvation can satisfy our souls. The only thing that can bring satisfaction. And we see here that this is, this is the Christian message. It's believe in Christ. He gives us his righteousness. He gives us his covenant blessings. We didn't earn it. We didn't do enough work to earn it. He has earned it for us. He has entered God's rest. He is the better Adam, the better Israel that has worked and entered God's rest. He has done it for us. And so the call this morning is to believe in Christ. It's to have faith in Him. Yes, there's implications. As our confession says, we're saved by faith alone, but our faith is never alone, right? It's accompanied by these good works out of a heart of gratitude. But that is not the grounds 
of our right standing with God. It's not our works. It's not how much we can do, but it is the work of Christ alone. And so we're going to sing in a couple minutes this great hymn reminds us of this great work of God in the gospel. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace. Wretched, to the fount I fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. There's no other hope for us today. There's no hope in worldly pleasures, worldly longings. There is hope in Christ. And so this morning, may we feed on him. May we, with the eyes of faith, behold Christ in the gospel. May we see him crucified and believe that he's done it for us. That it was our guilt that put him there, but he suffered so that we might be saved. He's led us through the seas of judgment to safety at heaven's shore. May we come this morning praising him, trusting in him alone. Let us not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. The Son of glory himself. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ, the great I am, who comes and speaks words of comfort to us, Lord, in the darkness of our sin, in the sea of our depravity, in the chaos of the world around us, you call out and reveal yourself to us. You say, I am. Do not be afraid. And so this morning, may we be reminded that just as you led the people of Israel through the sea with the pillar of fire and cloud, you parted the sea so that the people might go through on dry ground in leading them to the heavenly promised land, so you have done for us, Lord. Your presence is here today leading us, calling us to believe in Christ revealed in the gospel so that we might pass through the judgment safe and so that we might leap, go to heaven's promised land where there'll be no sin, no more mourning, so that we might drink from the waters of life forevermore, being satisfied in Christ alone, who is not only our creator and our sustainer, but our redeemer. Help us this morning to trust, to believe, to not stumble over this rock of offense, to not search for signs or words of wisdom, but to look to Christ crucified this morning, the wisdom of God and the power of God. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So we come now to the time of our service where we partake of the Lord's Supper, where each week we're sort of reminded of this, here's a big fancy word, eschatological. The, the end times, the end goal, the last days looking that we do each week. This meal is not just to be a meal in and of itself. It's meant to point our eyes forward to that coming day of judgment 
where if we don't have the blood of the Lamb applied to us, we're without hope. We'll be the ones crying for the rocks to cover us, but they won't. But for those that are hidden in Christ, the rock of ages cleft for us, we have great hope. And so this meal is a reminder of what Christ has did. His body was broken. The rock of ages cleft. Cleft means to split in two, broken for us, so that we might have life. And so we're reminded that we've heard the word preached, right? This preaching that we read about is a means of grace. It's a way that our faith is strengthened and increased when we hear the gospel of Christ. Faith rises up in us. We're assured that God has saved us, that our sin is forgiven, that wrath is not meant for us, but has been poured out on the Son of God. And so what our confession says and what we believe Scripture says, it's not just the word preached, but the word seen in baptism in the Lord's Supper. That baptism is this picture of us going under the waters of judgment, coming up to new life in Christ. And in sort of a similar parallel way at the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of this judgment that happened. That the judgment of God, the wrath of God, was poured out on the Son for our sin, but it was paid for in full. And that there's no sin now that keeps us from God, that He's paid for our sins. And so this meal is where we remember that and we look forward to His coming. And so it's a means of grace because it strengthens us, it assures us, it confirms our faith, it nourishes our souls. And with the eyes of faith, we look to Christ our Savior. And so if you're not a believer, if you haven't been baptized, if you haven't professed faith in Christ, then this is not a meal for you. It's not for people that have not had the blood of the Lamb applied to them by faith. But it is for those that have. It is a covenant meal. It's a, it's a covenant meal by, whereby we remember the promises of the covenant. Namely, that Christ has done it. <laughs> that his body was broken, his blood was shed, so that ours might be spared. And so each week we come confessing our sin. We come seeing the ways this week that we've chosen the pleasures of this world. We've chosen the food that perishes away. We've done something in the moment that we thought would satisfy us, and it didn't. And we've sinned in some ways this week. And so we come bringing those before our Lord, confessing them. But we also come with great joy, knowing that He has done it. The one promised in the Old Testament has now fulfilled all the promises. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And He has done the work that we could not. And so this morning, we believe. We trust and we believe that Christ has done this. For us, the, the bread represents his body, the wine, his blood. And so let's come this morning and partake by faith. Let's pray for the supper. Lord, we thank you for this meal, this means of grace that you've given us. Lord, may it not be a dead ceremony to us, but may it bring us life. Not in and of itself, not by any power that I have, but by the power of your spirit present here with us in the supper. With the eyes of faith, we look to Christ now, trusting in Him 
and receiving and resting on Him alone for salvation. We pray that you would bless these, this meal and use it for your good. In your name we pray. Amen. Come form a line, take the elements back to your seat, and we'll partake together. We remember that the bread that we break is a reminder of our communion with Christ. So each week we take, we eat, we remember, and we believe that Christ's body was broken for the complete forgiveness of all of our sins. And in the same way, this cup of blessing which we bless is a cup of the new covenant bought with the precious blood of our Lord. Each week we take, we drink, we remember and we believe that Christ's blood was shed for the complete forgiveness of all of our sins. And if you want to stand and we'll respond out of thankfulness for this great work of salvation God has done for us by singing the hymn in your handout, Rock of Ages.
kind of offerings where we remember all that God has provided for us. Costly grace you freely give. Amazing words that we have so much to be thankful for, not only the common grace that God has given us in this world, but also the special grace, the redemptive grace that he's given us in his son. And so we remember each week the, the financial money that he's provided for us to care for us and those around us, and we give a portion of that back to him out of gratitude for all that he has graciously given us. So let's pray for our offerings this morning. Lord, we thank you for all that your hand has given us, Lord. We have much to be thankful for, and most importantly, that which you have given us that came at a great cost to you, but you give freely to us the grace of salvation, Lord. May we give this morning, not begrudgingly, not, um, not to try to earn something from you, some favor, some salvation, Lord, some penance, but help us this morning to give with joy, knowing that you have given us so much, and to really support the preaching of the gospel, this food that does endure to the end of the age. So we pray that you would bless these humble offerings and use them for the work of your kingdom. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Stand with me and sing hymn number 13, the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Yes. <laughs> Every Sunday. That's right. <laughs> 